So Rachel, you know, the issue of pain during intercourse is huge. And this is something that I literally see in my practice day in and day out from the menopausal population, perimenopausal women, younger women, cancer survivors or women going through cancer treatments. Sexual pain is a real issue. There is certainly a place for moisturizers, lubricants, even hormones in certain cases. But sometimes the issue can be purely mechanical where muscles are super tight and we need to bypass that or the vaginal opening has become so uh, small and narrowed that mechanical stretching might be advantageous. So I think that's something that we should discuss. Well, one of the things I love about doing this, this uh, podcast with you is we're having conversations that you and I probably have a lot more often, I would say, dramatically more often than the average person, but trying to translate some of these concepts that might seem scary or overwhelming to learn about and then finding out that there are actually better solutions on the market when you get your arms around what this issue is. One of the things that has always astounded me in, in women's health is how long it takes women to be diagnosed for certain conditions that are really having a huge impact on their lives. How long, is this something you see with uh, painful sex or the, you know, when you use the, the medical terms, dyspareunia or vulvodynia, have, when patient, patients walk into your office, have they been suffering for a long time? You know, I think this is a, uh, a, a difficult question to answer. Number one, yes, it can take a long time for patients to bring this to the attention of their providers. Number two, many, many people don't bring it to the attention of their providers and they suffer in silence or try to do their own research online or with friends or whatnot. And then healthcare providers are partially to blame for this because, you know, we truly don't always have the time, the knowledge, the wherewithal, uh, or the impetus to bring this subject up in the huge amount of uh, subject matters that we do need to discuss with our patients during a routine exam. It might be fair to say that one of the biggest challenges we have in women's health, very broadly defined, is that we're not having the conversations. And I've seen in my experience from a business building side, and I imagine you've seen it in your office, that the act of having the conversation and putting words to the problem and trying to describe it is really the most critical thing to even have the opportunity to find a solution. Yeah, I mean, I think this is changing, uh, truly has changed uh, drastically over the last couple of years, which is a great thing. And uh, so I, I think women are, are, are luckily feeling a little bit more comfortable with the subject matter. And I think in our offices, we're trying to normalize the conversation a little bit so that women know they're not alone. I wanted to also bring up with you, Rachel, you know, we have spent a lot of time on this show talking about loose pelvic floor muscles, trying to exercise and tone the pelvic floor muscles in order to gain strength or maybe to uh, prevent incontinence or maybe to enhance sexual lives. One thing I'm very excited to speak about with Tracy today is the pelvic floor muscles that might be just a little too tight. We call them hypertonic, and this has a whole other set of problems to discuss. Welcome to the business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschirl.
Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business, or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We are so delighted to have our guest today, Tracy McNeil, President and CEO of Materna Medical. Welcome, Tracy. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. This is definitely not your first rodeo um, in the world of healthcare. So describe what Materna Medical does, what you currently have on the market, and what's expected. Yeah, so Materna Medical is an OBGYN platform in what we call a femtech white space. So we've got traction with first market products that address the most common pelvic conditions that women face. So our first product on the market is Milli, M-I-L-L-I, at milliforher.com. Milli was launched in 2019 as a consumer wellness product to treat chronic pelvic floor tightness. That's sometimes called vaginismus, dyspronia, gets called a lot of things. I know Dr. Dweck will have a lot to say about this. Um, and we are pursuing FDA clearance for that in an effort to make it easier for patients to get to. And our pipeline product is uh, aiming to reduce pelvic floor injuries during childbirth. And that's in a pivotal trial right now. Okay, so for the people who don't understand um, all the jargon or even the conditions that you're treating, uh, Dr. Dweck, could you, Alyssa, could you describe what that means? What, what the patient experiences if they're dealing with one of these pelvic health issues that Materna has been designed to solve? Yeah, so a welcome to the world of dilators, which has been a very mysterious, and I don't even want to call it taboo, you know how much I hate that word, but it's really been a kind of a mysterious phenomenon, but really catching on over the years. Uh, dilators are gradually increasing size cylinders to help both mechanically stretch the vagina for people who are undergoing tightness of the muscles, like Tracy mentioned. Um, this is also uh, helping for uh, other populations. So for example, the trans uh, population, male to female, often uses dilators to help create a neovagina. There are some women, rarely, who are born with a congenital absence of the vagina. So dilators can be used for that reason too. And essentially, dilators help to also train the brain to basically say little things in the vagina place gradually to, to stretch the vaginal opening and the vaginal canal won't hurt. So it trains the mind and the brain to expect this as uh, something that's not painful. So I know that's kind of a long-winded way to explain what dilators are and who they're helpful for. The majority of people that I recommend dilators to are women who are looking to uh, engage in comfortable penetrative intercourse who have been unable to, whether it's due to tight muscles, whether it's due to lack of use of the vagina for some time, whether it's due to atrophy, there are lots of reasons for that. So Tracy, how do you find yourself um, in this world? Obviously you've been in med tech for a while. What drew you to this opportunity? 
Yeah, so I specialize in commercializing medical devices, and this is my first opportunity to work in women's health. I'm not the founder of Materna, um, but the board recruited me uh, a little over two years ago to join and take these products to the commercial phase. And I had never heard of some of these issues before. I'd never heard of vaginismus uh, and vulvodynia and all of the issues that Millie is addressing. And I had no idea how common the pelvic floor injuries are due to childbirth, so incontinence and prolapse. And as I got to know the Materna team, every time I had a conversation with somebody on the team, I got more interested. And I, I took the job really kind of with my engineer mind, like, well, it's got a good clinical pathway that we've got good data that's, the IP is secure, you know, it's a big market, little bit of, like, very little competition. But as I've come to lead the company, I've realized that it is just the most satisfying job I've ever had by, by a long way. It is so easy to get up every day working on these issues because it's such an important unmet need. And there are so many patients that have so few options and, and they're, it's very treatable. Yeah, I, I would imagine you find it to be as rewarding as I do because this program works. It just does take some motivation. So I generally preface that to my patients when we're talking about dilators. And I also think it takes a lot of education because many, many women have absolutely no idea that this even exists. What yeah. I love about Millie, and I would love you to sort of explain uh, more about the, the ins and outs and the technical uh, nuances of this device is that it, it is, it is like a technically advanced uh, piece of machinery, if you will, but used very simply. Uh, talk to us about some of the improvements that you and the company have made over just the standard plastic, cold, kind of more medicinal uh, dilators. Yeah, well, so sequential dilators are kind of old technology. You know, it, they're very simple. They start, you get a set that are in increasing sizes. And th they work, but the, the adherence is pretty low. Patients don't really like them. So if we have, so just sort of, and I remember being really shocked when I saw them for the first time uh, as a med tech engineer, thinking this is the best that my industry can do for patients that have pain and anxiety about wanted penetration, right? To have to do it over and over in graduatingly larger sizes. It just seems like a bad design. So Millie, and I can't take any credit for this. I didn't design it at all. That was all the founder, but Millie goes in about the size of your pinky and the patient controls the expansion. It expands inside the anatomy at the patient's control one millimeter at a time. That's why it's called Millie. Um, and it does also have optional vibration, which helps the mind. Dr. Druck was talking about this, letting the mind reset and overcome the pain receptors. And, and patients typically would use the vibration when they get to a plateau. Like when they say they're at size 24 and they want to get to 25, the vibration really helps them break through. And, and because they don't have to keep taking out and putting in different sizes, it's uh, it's more discreet. You know, it, it's in a little case. It's easy to clean. It goes under your sink and nobody knows. Um, it's just, it's a lot easier. So for people who are not familiar with these kinds of products, with dilators or Millie, Give us a sense. You said the device itself is the size of a pinky, but then you were starting to talk about numbers within mm -hmm. the vaginal canal. Yeah. Describe what that is and if buyers should know about it, care about it. Is it some measure they're going to learn if they use one of these devices? Like, is it better to be a 27 versus a 24? <laughs> yeah, so people can, people can 
use dilators for a, a lot of reasons. A lot of times it is because they want to return to intercourse, but a lot of times it's not, you know, maybe they just have pelvic pain. Maybe they are trying to get to the point where they can withstand a pelvic exam, um, whatever, we just call it wanted penetration. And so they may have uh, a, a variety of diameters that they're thinking about as their goal. Our, our starts at 15 millimeters. This isn't necessarily a lot of, a lot of um, Americans that understand that think in millimeters, but it's about the size of your pinky is 15 millimeters. And we go up to a 40, 40 millimeters, which is about the size of a standard partner. <laughs> okay. The vibrating feature is super interesting uh, for us as gynecologists because this enhances blood flow. So, you know, we, we like that because that really helps to uh, foster healthy tissue. So just a little aside there. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we hear about often is besides genetic abnormalities uh, that women experience dyspareunia or anxiety around any kind of penetration as a result of trauma. Um, does this help with that? How I'd love to hear, Alyssa, how you think about that when you're counseling patients and how that might interact with a device such as this. Absolutely. I mean, I see this in my practice where I have young, young women who come in and they are having difficulty inserting a tampon and it's not because of a structural abnormality or they have had a history of abuse or uh, something along that line in past. So alongside their therapist, because of course that's a huge piece of this uh, uh, treatment paradigm, are dilator uh, therapies, which really allow somebody to uh, help stretch the vaginal opening on their own terms. They don't have to worry about a partner. They don't have to worry about pressure from anybody other than the pressure they're placing on themselves. So uh, these have been very helpful for women who have unfortunately um, been, been placed in this type of a situation, yeah. Yeah, and Tracy, I'm always interested in what um, businesses and business owners hear from users. What are some of the testimonials or the language they use? And I imagine some people come into using this product without any background. Some have tried a number of other things. What are the words they use? They're not saying, you know, yippee, 40 millimeters. Um, what, what are they, what are the, what's the language they're using that they know it's working? I mean, so many things. They just say it's a relief. They say there, we, and we have patient reported outcomes around a lot of things. So less pain, we do about a three point pain reduction on a scale of one to 10 within three months of using Millie three points of less anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, about 86% of our patients can return to intercourse within six months. And they've been suffering on average for five years. Wow. And have seen three or four clinicians who can't help them. Not every OBGYN is as evolved as Dr. Dweck. Mm -hmm. a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of OBGYNs aren't taught about vaginismus. So when the patients show up, they don't know what it is and the patient doesn't know what it is. And it's um, so there's just a, lo a lot of the language is really around relief. I hear that all the time when any, ever anyone speaks to Alyssa, whether it's they see her um, in person or on video or get to listen to the podcast, everybody has the same reaction. Oh, I wish my doctor spoke like that. I yes. wish she were my doctor. You're too kind, but I have to say dilators were a shock to me when I first learned about them because this is definitely not what we learned about in med school or residency. So this is something that, you know, comes with a little bit of more experience and interest in the field of sexual health for women. Where did um, you, where did you first encounter dilators? 
I think I first encountered them during uh, my first ISWISH conference. So this is an organization for the betterment of sexual health for women and uh, really got introduced to them uh, during that. I also obtained special training in female sexual health. So obviously learned about them through my, uh, my mentors um, for, uh, for yeah. help with my patients. So I have found them helpful, but I, I couldn't agree with you more about the uh, tediousness of, of using them and the real motivation that uh, people need to maintain a program. I am curious, do you think that most of your customers uh, find Millie through direct-to-consumer links or is it through their providers? Because I do have a lot of patients who come to see me and they've already kind of done the research on dilators before they come to me and maybe they're not using them properly or their regimen that they've adopted is just too intense or not intense enough. What's your experience? So about 80% of our patients come direct to consumer, just direct from from Dr. Google. Um, and then we've got a, a growing affiliate network. We're up to about 85 clinicians who have a custom code that um, they can give their patients to get um, a discount on our website. And that's about 20% of our, our revenues right now. There's just so much work still to do. Um, I don't even think we've, we've tapped, tapped like 1%. I, you know, and, and to your earlier question, Rachel, I, I wanna make the distinction between primary vaginismus sort of the, the younger women that Dr. Dweck was talking about that can't, couldn't get a tampon in for no, for no real reason that anybody knows. That's a relatively uncommon condition. <clears throat> what we typically would be trying to find are all the millions of women who have secondary vaginismus. So whatever their primary condition was, it could be trauma, could be endometriosis. Um, about half of the market, as far as we can tell, is menopausal. So the, the initial primary condition is the, the sort of the typical drying tissue, thinning tissue, then sex starts to hurt, they start to avoid it and they get anxiety and a chronic contraction. So that's secondary to their primary condition of, of menopause. So that's about half of it. About a quarter of the market are cancer survivors. So women who have you know pelvic cancer, like ovarian cancer, um, uterine cancer, they might get radiation delivered vaginally. Also chemotherapy puts them into a sudden menopause. So then they end up with all of those same issues. And so there's really so much work to do to help those patients understand the secondary vaginismus is a very common and very treatable condition. Big part of what we're on about is to just get this conversation normalized and out into popular culture so women can self-identify and get, get treated. There's no reason for them to suffer so long. Yeah. We find that we face this so often in different spaces in women's health where people have no idea, whether it's investors who have never heard of this condition or people who are the sufferers who didn't know that there were options. And one of the themes that comes out over and over again when we're speaking to folks on the show is what you mentioned, which is the connection between what might be a physical problem and the emotional piece. So I don't know that people would naturally think if I'm suffering from secondary vaginismus, that I might also suffer from anxiety as a result of it. So I found it particularly interesting that one of your endpoints of how you're measuring improvement is the reduction in anxiety because it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle that many women are, are struggling to get out of because they don't know which thing to fix first. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Brooke, I'm imagining you have some thoughts about that. So here's today's hot flash. 
There's a little known but soon to be better known syndrome that some people suffer with called vaginismus. This is when the muscles of a woman's vagina squeeze so super tight that they essentially put up a do not enter sign to anything, whether it's penetration or even using a tampon. Absolutely. I mean, look, this is a, this is a team approach in, in my particular practice. I usually utilize the help of, you know, maybe some intravaginal Valium to help get people started with dilator programs, moisturizers, lubricants, even vaginal estrogen go along with. I have several pelvic floor physical therapists in my neck of the woods that are invaluable with helping these patients. And then of course, therapists. Uh, so yeah, it is an absolute team approach. I, I wanted to back up to one thing you mentioned, Tracy, about F the FDA. Mm -hmm. um, you know, since these are available over the counter and have been for some time other than Millie, which is so super uh, technically advanced, mm -hmm. why does the FDA have to be involved here? since it's not a prescription. Right. Well, so FDA has decided that this particular class of products, and I, I haven't seen this in very many parts of my career, but this particular class of products, there are a couple of dilators that have FDA clearance. Um, and so the strict interpretation of FDA guidelines would be that if there is a product that has your, that does what your product does, and they have FDA clearance, you need FDA clearance. Because these are such a low risk set of devices, the FDA has decided that as long as you're not marketing it with any indications or claims, so you can't talk about vaginismus, you can't talk about dyspareunia, you can't say that it makes anything better, then you can just sell it as a consumer wellness product, you know, and and there there's a there's a big array of how people are are dealing with that if you go online. <laughs> I guess there's just a couple of things. One is we already have another medical device in our pipeline. Our DNA is medical devices, right? So, but moreover, the FDA was created with our tax dollars to protect patients from greedy entrepreneurs like me, right? <laughs> and the whole point is to make sure that you're not saying anything that you don't have proof for and that it's all being looked at by independent reviewers. So you're not making claims that if you sort of go back to Victorian era marketing with the snake oil and all of that stuff, that's what we're trying to avoid. And so we really feel it also when we looked at our patient reported outcomes, just as our consumer wellness product, what we found that that, that data point that women have been suffering for so long before they find, they're very frustrated by the time they find us. And, um, and that only makes anxiety worse, right? If you've ever had and had any kind of condition, you didn't know what it was and you couldn't get any validation. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And for a mind body thing, that's particularly bad. And so we just felt that the right thing to do for the patient was to get FDA clearance so we can really talk about it all in our marketing. What, what, will, what will be the difference or is the difference between the consumer wellness product and the one um, that will be FDA cleared? Well, the main difference is labeling. And I know that might seem like a small thing to patients, but it's a huge thing to the FDA. So you can sell the same, same piece of cardboard and in one sense, it's a tongue depressor and in another sense, it's a bookmark right? It's what are you calling it and what are you saying to people? So the labeling will be different. And, um, and in particular, so if you go to our website right now, you don't see anything about the indications and claims because we're waiting for FDA clearance on that. Um, so it'll be easier to educate people. So for listeners who don't speak that language, can you give an example of what a, of what a claim is? 
So we, we talk about in the business side of this, you can't make structure function claims, which is translated in, you can't attribute any benefit to the product unless it was proven in a clinical study. So mm -hmm. what are some of the claims that you are looking to demonstrate and communicate to patients in this study that you're doing right now to support this device? We have published medical data about the reduction in pain, the reduction in anxiety, the, the diameter gains that people make, the speed with which they return to intercourse. Those are all published scientific data in the public domain. So the fact that I'm saying it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm claiming it as a product, it's all out there, but I couldn't use it in my marketing. So those are claims. Once we have clearance and FDA looks at all that and says, yes, then that, then you can actually talk about it and it'll make it a lot easier for patients when they're scrolling Facebook or, or whatever they're doing to find, to self-identify like, oh yeah, I have that problem. And the other piece is indications. So claims are things that a patient would be able to expect to get from using your product. Indications are what's going on with them. And this is a particular, I'm curious what you think about this, because I think this is given that our indications that we're, that we're filing for are vaginismus and dyspareunia, both words that most patients have never heard of, you know, it, those will be the indications in our labeling, but I'm curious what you think, you know, how do you, how do you think about putting it in a language that patients would be able to say, oh yeah, that's me. I think that uh, painful sex is a universal term these days. Uh, so we can wrap it up with a bow and call it dyspronia, but I think if we just describe it the way that it is, so painful sex due to, you know, hypertonic pelvic floor muscles, people are going to understand that. The pelvic yeah. floor is something we talk about now, so I think that's uh, uh, becoming a little bit more common in the vernaculum. Uh, I will say the harder thing is to code this with insurance codes because uh, they don't uh, they don't describe it too well in one word answers either. That's right. a little gynecology humor there for you. Uh, <laughs> this is what I laugh at all day. Uh, in any event, um, I think that the minute you start to put out educational material when you have claims, which I'm quite certain you will get mm -hmm. um, as you're expecting to, uh, you know, it's going to, the descriptions are going to resonate with people because enough people have experienced uh, these symptoms to, uh, to, to feel that they will be helped by it. I also think that the, the mind-body connection that I talk about with my patients, I need you to train your brain to know that putting something in your vagina is not going to hurt because you're doing it on your own terms. Mm -hmm. This makes sense to my patients, especially if they came in for a focused visit for this reason. So yeah. uh, I, I think you'll, you'll be very successful at that. Oh, thank you. What we see in so many categories when, again, where there's a, an idea that we have spent woefully little time talking about um, as a society is there's this, as you said, this overwhelming feeling of relief. So to the extent that a product like yours enables people to get an answer sooner, you know, is, is so exciting. We talk about PCOS, Alyssa, the average time to, the average time to diagnose PCOS is something like seven years. Well, and endometriosis, um, many, many uh, conditions take a long time for people to, you know, really take serious, uh, a serious look at things. Tracy, what do you find by the time they get to you? You said they're frustrated. They might've gone to three or four clinicians. You know, is this covering months or even years before they get to a solution? Yeah, it's years. It's about five years for us. 
you know, I think the data shows that women don't really talk to their doctors about what's going on below the waist. So these are the patients that are trying to get help. So the number, the, the annual time, the time might be even longer for people who haven't even started asking the questions yet. Is that the implication? Yeah, I think I think the ones that are that are trying to get an answer and going from doctor to doctor to try to get help are actually the minority. I think the majority, 70, 80% aren't talking to their doctors at all. Are you looking to require a prescription for the uh, Millie device with the one that is cleared by the FDA in future? So, th so there will be a prescription required once we get FDA clearance. Isn't that ironic? But we're also going for OTC, right? So that would that would make us the first so over the counter. So for, for those that are listening, in the beginning, ibuprofen used to require a prescription. Now you can go buy it at the pharmacy, right? And that's really it's that's an an FDA pathway that I think is really important for this patient class. Um, so it's not skipping the FDA, it's going all the way through doing the human factor studies and making sure that, that patients can safely self-identify and treat themselves. And yeast infections were the same. Like you used to have to go to get a, uh, an exam just to get diagnosed for a yeast infection. When Monistat came out, <laughs> OTC, that's a good thing. It makes it, you know, empowers women to say, yeah, you know, I have a yeast infection. And there are so, so many products that are used by literally tens of millions of people, allergy products, indigestion products, pain relief that you've discussed that users don't even know used to be prescription. So it is a process by which the FDA determines that consumers will appropriately understand how to diagnose and take the product. So mm -hmm. I want people to understand that that is not a new idea no. at all. This is a, no. a pathway, but it is ironic that they'll be using essentially the same product that they're using now, but it will require a prescription. Not mm -hmm. that there isn't a difference in terms of communication, but sometimes you look at what's happening in regulatory bodies and just sort of scratch your head and say, I know. if I repeat that, that out loud, does that make sense? There's a couple opportunities that we see. One is that there's a code for the prescription where the patient can now have get reimbursed, which is um, huge depending on their insurance. Right. And then, and so that's good because that makes it more affordable for people. But then also, I think there's an opportunity to partner with telemedicine providers because I think there are more and more clinicians, both pelvic floor physical therapists and OBGYNs that are offering their services and through telemedicine and, and, you know, getting patients connected with them through a simple virtual visit. You don't always need an exam for something like this. And so I actually think that I see it a little glass half full. I think that it's going to take consumer education, but also getting everybody connected. Because I think that the this is really at the forefront of what people are thinking about in OBGYN right now. I'm curious what is coming down the pike. You saw, Rachel, I guess you piqued my interest when you talked about product too. Uh, are, are, are you free to discuss that with us? I am. Well, I don't have, I mean, it doesn't have FDA clearance. So, um, but it's, it's the reason it's probably the number one reason I joined Materna. I was so excited when I learned. So I, so this is also a dilator, but instead of being used at home, it's used in acute labor and delivery. So during labor. And the idea here comes from the clinically unmet need of injuries during childbirth. So just sort of what, what problem are we solving for? 50% of women will have incontinence or prolapse by the time we're 55, half of us. And that can happen for a lot of reasons, but we're nine times more likely to have those symptoms if we've had a vaginal delivery. And you'd say this to women and they're like, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 
the, the data is there to support it. It's not just anecdotal. Um, and what, and so I think that, you know, most women know that they don't want to tear. So perineal laceration is the kind you can see, but I think less commonly understood is that there are pelvic muscles that hold your organs in place. Your urethra, vagina, and rectum go through these, these pelvic floor muscles. And then as the baby's going through, those muscles can separate from the bone. And then the organs don't have the support they need. And those are difficult injuries to fix. So what we did in our pilot study is we, we, basically slowly stretch those muscles over an hour right before the baby came through. So just doing kind of like a yoga stretch instead of a sudden stretch. And, uh, and we reduce pelvic floor injury by 60%. Wow. So I'm curious because, you know, this whole field has evolved so much since I've been in practice for 25 plus years. And I don't, you know, to be fair, I don't practice obstetrics for the past couple of years, but uh, you know, there are some theories that much of the pelvic floor injuries occur before delivery. That is just from being pregnant. Um, mm -hmm. what, what's your thought on that? If, if you have any thoughts on that. And, uh, you know, maybe there is a reason why Brazil has a 95% C-section rate because they would like to protect their pelvic floors, uh, amongst other reasons, I'm sure. There's a lot to say there. I mean, I, I think this is a deeply understudied part of healthcare. Um, I know that in the United States, there's enormous pressure on hospitals to reduce their C-section rates. They're financially incentivized to do so. So hospital A on this side of the street has a 40% C-section rate. Hospital B across the street has a 20% C-section rate. Big buckets of money go to this hospital because of their C-section rates, because it's, it's linked to postpartum hemorrhage and all kinds of problems later, later in life. And, and it's expensive for the healthcare system. And it's, let's be honest, it's abdominal surgery for mom. But I don't, I'm not familiar with any data to show that it's specifically just the carrying of the baby that causes pelvic floor injury. Um, and we do have some before and after ultrasounds where you can really see the, the integrity of the muscle before and then after where it, it is separated from the bone. I think that uh, these monetary calculations of hospital A and hospital B definitely don't take into account the billions of dollars that are spent on incontinence and pelvic floor issues no. years down the line. So it's a little, no. so it's fascinating. Uh, well, we just got data back actually um, just a week ago from the first part of our pivotal study. We reduced the C-section rate by 50% in our device group versus the control, which is really exciting. It's a secondary endpoint for us. Uh, we didn't know if we could, we could move the needle on that, but if we can launch this product with claims along those lines, I think we'd be adopted as the standard of care pretty quickly. So that's a great note to end on um, where you're really improving the lives of women. So thank you so much for taking the time and sharing the exciting work you're doing. And oh, thank you so much for having me. And hopefully bringing understanding to words in our vocabulary that many people don't have and and helping explain them explain them in terms so that people might be able to ask questions and get some solutions well thank you both for having me it was really a pleasure don't forget subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business